So, an open letter to a seagull. Don't worry, I didn't finally lose my mind or take another super hallucinogenic bong hit. The seagull in question is a YouTuber uh, who goes by the name Seagull B. She leveled numerous criticisms at me in response to my recent episode on circumcision and FGM. Her comments were peppered with words like arrogant and anti-Semitism. I woke this morning to realize that she deleted all her comments, which was disappointing since I thought our exchange would make great fodder for a future episode. This episode, in fact. Thankfully, some screenshots and partial bits of commentary embedded in notifications survived. So now I'm trying to reassemble her comments, kind of like an archaeologist trying to piece together an ancient papyrus. How's that for word painting? Uh, And I just want to say before I start that Seagull B, if you're listening or watching, this isn't me trying to say you're a bad person or anything remotely like that. I just think that if someone criticizes you or your work, you have a right to address or refute those criticisms. So I'll read her first uh, comment. And she says, just as I don't think religions lack logic completely, I don't think atheists are completely logical. I resented the phrase warrior god, referring to the Hebrews god, probably a phrase that justifies. That stops abruptly. Remember, I'm reading this from an email notification. Uh, But thanks to renowned uh, Coxman, armchair theologian, and YouTuber Dirk Stabbins, I was able to piece together the rest. And so I can see where uh, Dirk quoted her in his reply. And she says, I resented the phrase warrior god referring to the Hebrews god, probably a phrase that justifies anti-Semitism. So probably a phrase to justify anti-Semitism. Now, no offense intended, but that's got to be one of the most batshit things I've ever heard. It makes no sense. Uh, Think about it. Who is it that we usually think of as perpetrating anti-Semitism? Usually Christians and Muslims, which is, of course, ironic since they're all Abrahamic faiths. And uh, that's my point. Why would Christians or Muslims get worked up into an anti-Semitic fervor or furor? I feel like I'm using a word out of context, but you get my meaning. Uh, Over the violence in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament is a part of the Christian Bible, and Muslims, even though they refer to God as Allah, still consider Jews, quote-unquote, people of the book, and and, uh, revere the same stories and patriarchs. And I don't really think any of the Abrahamic faiths have a problem with the idea of God as a warrior. Christians seem to be kind of split-brained on the issue. On the one hand, uh, they love gentle Jesus, meek and mild, as Hitch used to uh, jokingly uh, refer to him. But at the same time, they also seem to like the macho, butt-kicking God of the Old Testament. You put both Testaments together and you end up with a dad that's both tough and loving, I guess. A sky dad. Sky daddy. 
Yeah, but what a strange notion, though, that somehow by pointing out the violence in the Old Testament or by calling Yahweh a war god, you somehow risk fomenting anti-Semitism. It does kind of remind me, though, of Marcion of uh, Sinope, I think it's pronounced, an important leader in the early church, active in the uh, second century CE, I believe. Marcion was actually so put off by the God of the Hebrew Bible that he proposed or embraced the idea that Yahweh was actually an evil or inferior being responsible for the creation of the material world, what he and the Gnostics would term the Demiurge, and that the true God was a remote spiritual being, this heavenly father, the the real God who sent Jesus to redeem the world. He basically thought the Hebrew Bible was incompatible with Christian teaching and wanted to scrap it, but he was denounced by other more orthodox church fathers. Although considered heretical, he was supposedly the first church leader to start putting together a Christian canon. His canon consisted of 11 books, um, mostly based on Luke and... uh, Paul, uh, the epistles of Paul, or it included the epistles of Paul, if I remember correctly. But the reason I brought up Marcion is because, hey, there was at least one Christian back in the day who didn't like the Hebrew Bible. But I'm joking a bit. This idea of a demiurge that the God who made the material world was kind of inferior, evil, in some cases even insane— And uh, the true God was this God beyond that, in that uh, Jesus was sent by that true God to redeem the world. Uh, That's common in Gnostic thinking. Not that Marcion uh, was a Gnostic in the truest sense. He was kind of like, his theology was like a mixture of Gnosticism and uh, Orthodox uh, early Christian teaching. Not to get off track, but if any of you guys out there are fellow ancient history buffs or you're also enthusiastic about the history of religion and you're not familiar with the Gnostics, check them out. I think the Gnostics are one of the most compelling religious groups in or, or movements in the history of religion. And the name comes from Gnosis, which is Greek for knowledge, and that's because Gnosticism placed a heavy emphasis on mysticism and secret knowledge and self-knowledge. Really fascinating stuff. And I think Gnosticism survives, at least in part, with the Yazidis, that religious minority that um, was cornered by ISIS at Mount Sinjar not long ago, maybe last year or something. They have this kind of really interesting potpourri of religious beliefs, and um, one of the influences is Gnosticism, actually. Yeah, so I just brought up Marcion as an example of someone way back who didn't, uh, of a Christian who didn't like the Hebrew Bible. Um, But I don't think we have to worry about that today. Christians love them some Old Testament. Um, Now, Dirk and I both replied to her, uh, Seagull B., And we were actually very polite and respectful. I quickly explained that I meant no offense in my reference to the Hebrew God as a war or sky God. 
stems from the idea that Yahweh may have started out as the chief deity of some Mesopotamian pantheon, probably uh, Canaanite. Uh, the word El, often used for God, and also the somewhat problematic Elohim, uh, sometimes seen as plural in its usage, are both used at times to refer to the Hebrew God in the Old Testament. El was the chief deity of the Canaanites and was also the name of the chief deity in other Mesopotamian or Semitic cultures as well. Dirk, and I mean this as a compliment, is a true Bible geek, a big Robert M. Price fan, and he loves reading works by biblical scholars. So he might be a layman, but he's a layman who knows his stuff. He's a pretty well-read layman. And he good-naturedly unloaded both knowledge barrels on Seagull B. He went into the Song of Moses, where God is described as a warrior, and he even touched on the Tetragrammaton. Uh, one of my favorite biblical topics, the Tetragrammaton, is the four Hebrew letters that symbolize the name of God, which we rightly or wrongly translate or pronounce as Yahweh. Well, why don't I quickly read some verses from uh, the OT that kind of paint Yahweh as a war god. And here's uh, Exodus 15.3 through 15.4. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots in his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. And here's Isaiah 42:13. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. And here's an infamous one that you'll hear a lot of fellow non-believers, including the likes of Richard Dawkins, quote. And, uh... It starts with Numbers 31, 14. Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, who returned from battle. Have you allowed all the women to live, he asked them. They are the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in the Peor incident, so that a plague struck the Lord's people. Now kill all the boys and kill every woman who has slept with a man. But save for yourselves every girl who has never slept with a man. And that one doesn't necessarily say God is a warrior, depict God as a warrior, but it depicts God as someone who doesn't necessarily frown upon killing even women and children and taking young young virgins as spoils of war. And here's Exodus 17:16. He said because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. And here's another one I quickly noticed that has to do with war. Deuteronomy 21:10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head. Trim her nails and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. Um, 
Well, definitely strange. I, I wonder, it doesn't explain whether or not this captive woman has a choice in the matter. But anyway, I think I'm done reading uh, Bible quotes for now. But this idea of the Lord as a warrior, uh, as literature, I think it can be pretty cool. The idea of this patriarchal God that orders his people to war and smites enemies and uh, nations with plagues, etc. As literature, it's very compelling. And I don't think it becomes morally problematic in Till you take this stuff, these violent stories, literally, and you try to justify them, like Christian apologists do, including William Lane Craig, with this whole divine command theory stuff. This idea that it's all right to kill little children and babies if God says so, uh, that makes it moral. And hey, since they're innocent, they get to go straight to heaven once you kill them. So all's well that ends well. Really kind of morally offensive and twisted logic, in my opinion. One thing that Seagull B said that I did agree with was... Judaism is probably the most rational of the Abrahamic faiths. One thing I've always admired about modern Judaism, with the exception of some ultra-Orthodox sects perhaps, is the fact that with Judaism, the focus seems to be more on tradition and family rather than on literal belief. And of course, we know we really don't start to hear about concepts like hell until we get into the New Testament. The closest that maybe you have in the Old Testament is uh, Sheol, this gloomy place that's not really a place of punishment where everyone is kind of described as sleeping. And maybe uh, you might hear uh, the Greek word Hades inserted into some translations, but it's not taken as uh, this eternal, fiery place of punishment. And in fairness, in retrospect, I don't think Seagull B was accusing me of being anti-Semitic. I think she was more concerned that my criticisms of some of the stories in the Hebrew Bible could help stoke anti-Semitism. But as I just explained, I don't think that's a valid concern since the groups most likely to engage in anti-Semitism embrace the same stories, Christians and Muslims. And if you're listening and you happen to be a Muslim or a Christian, no, I'm not saying that you in particular are anti-Semitic. I'm just talking in generalities here. And I've said multiple times on the show how ludicrous Christian anti-Semitism seems to me. Christianity is essentially a Jewish religion. There may be some bigoted uh, people out there who don't want to hear that, but it is. Christianity was born out of Judaism. Jesus, if he existed, was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. The crowds he preached to would have been Jewish or at least primarily Jewish. I believe the gospel writers, with the exception of Luke, who was thought to have been a Gentile, were Jewish. Paul, formerly Saul, was Jewish. So Christian anti-Semitism has never made any sense to me. There is, of course, the ugly idea of blood libel, this idea that the Jewish people 
were responsible for Jesus' death, which makes no sense. Even if a handful of Jewish individuals, uh, Judas and the Pharisees, if you believe the gospel narrative, were complicit in his death, as I just stated, his family, followers, he himself, and the first Christians were all Jewish too. And what about the Romans? I'm Italian. How come uh, I never catch any flack for Jesus' death? Uh, Just kidding. Not trying to give anyone any ideas. I have enough on my plate. But on a serious note, it was this kind of ugly thinking, this whole blood libel thing that led to the death and persecution of Jews throughout the ages, and that ultimately culminated in the Holocaust, one of history's greatest nightmares. And speaking of the Holocaust, I know somewhere uh, Seagull B. mentioned Elie Wiesel, uh, the author of the book Night. And, uh, of course, he, he was um, a concentration camp survivor himself. And I remember um, having to read Knight for a sociology class one time. And it's a very small book, a small but powerful book. If you've never read Knight by Elie Wiesel, uh, check that out. But I feel for me personally, I'm able to compartmentalize. I can... I can say, wow, if you take some of these old Bible stories literally, they're very morally problematic, and they appear blood-soaked and barbaric to our modern moral sensibilities. And yet, at the same time, I can appreciate the stories as literature and still have a deep reverence for the Jewish people and their history and traditions. And it's kind of funny. I mean, part of me knows intellectually that these are Jewish stories, but when I criticize these, what I view as morally problematic Old Testament stories, I'm not doing so feeling that I'm being critical of Judaism or the Jewish people. Although I'm a non-believer, I was raised Catholic, and I was raised with these stories too. So I feel kind of like a former insider of sorts being critical of stories that are a part of my tradition too. And I think I actually said something to Seagull B to the effect that, in my mind, I'm just trying to apply reason and humanist values to ancient stories that I find problematic. I'm not trying to demonize a specific group or anything like that. I think I then went on to explain unnecessarily how some of my closest friends are Jewish, which is true. One of them happens to be a fellow atheist. She's actually one of the only other self-professed atheists I know in my personal life, with one or two other exceptions. But it's funny, as I was explaining that some of my friends are Jewish, I was self-consciously wondering if it smacked of when people say, hey, don't call me racist, I have a black friend. I think I've been spending way too much time on YouTube. This hyper-PC climate has me constantly walking on eggshells and second-guessing myself. It's exhausting, people. But of course, you know, um, the Old Testament is essentially the Hebrew Bible. And if you're criticizing Old Testament stories, I guess you are criticizing uh, at least Jewish texts in a way. But then again, isn't there a long tradition in Judaism and Islam, too, to be fair, of scholars, rabbis, clerics wrestling with these stories and the moral implications themselves, you know, uh, throughout the centuries. So I don't think it's bad to ask, are these stories morally problematic? Are they meant to be taken literally? Or is this just literature and uh, allegory? Is this just a narrative meant to 
convey some kind of um, truth. You know, and I feel like I'm kind of apologizing or dancing around a bit. So maybe I have to kind of go back to basics, go back to atheism 101, so to speak, and emphasize that it's all right for us to criticize religion. As far as I can tell, these are man-made belief systems, and they sometimes contain some pretty ugly or dangerous ideas that, when taken literally, can have some very horrifying real-world consequences. So I think if we want to advance as a species, if we want to claw our way out of the superstitious past and live in a world where reason and enlightenment values reign, we can't let political correctness keep us from criticizing man-made belief systems no matter how dearly some people hold those belief systems and those ideas. But it's funny, I just remembered at one point, it seemed like she was lauding Bill Maher for being better at criticizing religion than me and said maybe it has something to do with the fact that that he comes from both a Catholic and a Jewish background. Bill Maher's Bill Maher was raised Catholic, and he didn't find out till he was a little older that his mother was actually Jewish. Um, one of the replies I sent her, you know, I even included a little smiley face emoticon. I said, oh, you're a Bill Maher fan too, you know? And uh, But what occurred to me is I've heard Bill Maher decry the violence in the Old Testament numerous times. In fact, he often disparagingly, disparagingly refers to the Bible as the big book of Jewish fairy tales. So if you're going to wag your finger at me for my criticisms of Old Testament texts, then I guess you got to wag your finger at Bill, too, if you're going to be fair. But let's see, what else did she say? Oh, yeah, that same bit, she also says that just as she doesn't think religions are completely illogical, she doesn't think atheism is completely logical. I beg to differ. Well, I might agree a little that religions can be quote-unquote logical at times. Logical might not be the best word, but there is some inspiration and wisdom and even moral instruction at times that can be gleaned from religion. So in that sense, maybe it can be said that they possess a certain type of logic, a moral logic perhaps. But as I pointed out earlier, they can also be contradictory and morally problematic. Her comment about atheism not being completely logical, I guess I would have to know how she's defining atheism in her head. If in her mind an atheist is someone who claims to know with 100% certainty that there is no God, then that would be somewhat illogical, since after all, I don't think any of us can be 100% certain whether or not a higher power exists. But the way most atheists, including myself, see things is that, no, we can't know for certain, but we have our doubts due to what we deem a lack of evidence, especially when it comes to the supernatural claims of man-made religions. I heard Victor Stenger say, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, that even he's agnostic when it comes to the deist god or the god of the deist or some generic notion of a higher power. But he's atheistic when it comes to 
religions, man-made belief systems, and that's how I see things too. So there is often that overlap between agnosticism and atheism. So even though I'm technically agnostic when it comes to some vague, undefined higher power, I'm still doubtful, but I'll spare you my laundry list of reasons why I doubt the existence of a higher power or an afterlife for now. Uh, but here's a clue. Consciousness as an emergent property of the brain, and that's just one in a long on a long list. So, I, as I just explained it, that kind of atheism I actually think is extremely logical. That you admit you can't know for certain, but you have your strong doubts because of the lack of evidence, especially what when it comes to what very plainly seem to be man-made beliefs especially when these man-made religious texts contradict each other externally. We have all these different religions, but often contradict themselves internally. Contradictions within a given text. I'm not going to get into it now, but many times I've discussed doublets uh, in the Old Testament, these multiple accounts of the same story uh, that contradict one another. And of course, there's contradictions in the Gospels too, even though I know um, Christian apologists uh, try their hardest to try to harmonize them and say there are no contradictions here. When you have Jesus dying on a different day in John than in the synoptics, I don't know how the hell you harmonize that. Yeah, so that type of atheism, I actually... I'm hard-pressed to think of a more logical worldview uh, that one could possess. And I guess um, I try to eschew labels because I, th- I think it's bad to kind of pigeonhole yourself or um, constrain yourself with labels because it affects not only, I think, the way others see you, but the way you see yourself as well. But that type of atheism I'd probably describe as agnostic atheism. And if you push me into a corner and force me to choose a label, that's probably what I would call myself. Let's see what else. Uh, She says, what's the point of analyzing the sources of religion when Christianity turned out to be the most violent, not only physically, but psychologically? It is a bit arrogant to admit you enjoy certain and then it cuts off. Now, this is another strange one, in my opinion. I really didn't do a lot of religion bashing in that episode. I spent most of the time rather objectively discussing the history of circumcision in FGM, although I'm sure my moral revulsion towards the barbarity of FGM, as I described it in gruesome detail, was probably apparent at times. Even when I discussed religion and and violence in that episode, it was only briefly in passing when discussing the change in tone between the Old and New Testament, and then comparing the Judeo-Christian tradition or the Old and New Testament to the Quran, and all of that was only briefly in passing. And then she says, it is arrogant to admit you like certain, and as I said, it gets cut off, so I have to go from memory. I believe she took issue with me picking and choosing which bits I enjoy. I said how even if I find some aspects of a given religion morally offensive, I can usually still find something I enjoy, like the art, architecture, sacred music, maybe like I said earlier, the value of the stories as literature or symbolism. But what's wrong with that? Would you prefer I throw the baby out with the bathwater and say I want nothing to do with anything associated with religion? 
couldn't do that if I wanted to. It, it would be a lie. Um, how is me liking certain aspects and finding others problematic? Arrogant. I find that um, accusation baffling. Just because I doubt the divinity of Christ, I can't listen to Hildegard von Bingen or other sacred music. Just because I don't believe Muhammad ascended into uh, the night sky on a flying horse, I can't read Rumi anymore. Just because I find the story of Moses morally problematic at times uh, means I can't, I can't revere Jewish culture and tradition. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. And also you ask, what's the point of analyzing uh, the sources of religion, uh, as I think she worded it? Well, because I love history, especially ancient history, and even though I'm a non-believer, the history of religion. You know why I'm a non-believer? Well, it's partly because I know too much about the history of religion. If you want to make someone an atheist, uh, make them read the Bible or give them a bunch of books on comparative religion or world history. Some might make it through with their faith intact. There's lots of highly educated Christian apologists out there, uh, but you get my drift. And I noticed she didn't like Yahweh being referred to as a war god, but had no problem chucking Christianity under the bus and characterizing it as violent. And I would agree that some awful stuff has been done in the name of Christianity throughout the ages. Pogroms, crusades, inquisitions, witch hunts, etc., etc. But I just thought there was something ironic about that. Oh, and here she is addressing Dirk. Dirk Stabbins, glad to see you are, you are able to quote the Bible and show interest in a world outside your backside. I think she probably meant backyard, but alas, she said backside. Maybe she was trying to insult him. If you see a quote from the Bible as proof of a claim, then why do people who claim not to believe in God quote the Bible so much out of context in the same way religious fanatics do? The point I make is that the discussion of circumcision has been hijacked towards anti-Semitic claims that the Hebrew God is violent. And maybe this will be my bias showing through, but I don't think atheists can be considered quite as guilty of cherry-picking as believers. A believer will point to the nicer bits in their holy text to try to defend their faith— but to me, even if 99% of your religious text was morally sound, all puppies and rainbows, and then there was 1% that spoke about dashing babies against rocks or cutting the heads off infidels, that 99% wouldn't negate that highly morally problematic remainder. If an atheist like the late great Christopher Hitchens points out something like the slaughter of the Amalekites, and you say, yeah, but there's good stuff in there too. That doesn't suddenly get rid of the fact that your book has some troubling stuff in it. Sure, you can still enjoy the nicer bits or find wisdom and inspiration in them, as even I do, but that doesn't change the fact that that strange, problematic, blood-soaked, Bronze Age stuff is still lurking about in the background. And then she makes the suggestion that arguments against circumcision can lead to anti-Semitism. Once again, this doesn't seem to make much sense, although some Muslims, including uh, Muslim leaders and clerics in places like Iran, Palestine, and I'm sure even radical imams in uh, European cities, etc., have been known for spewing anti-Semitic rhetoric. But Muslims themselves practice circumcision. So how could they condemn Judaism for 
a practice that they hold in such high regard and engage in themselves. Only a minority of Christians, such as the Coptic Egyptians, practice male circumcision for religious reasons, but circumcision is widespread for non-religious reasons here in the States. So why would Christians, unless we're talking about European Christians who tend to not be circumcised, blame or disparage Jews as being responsible for circumcision? And as I discussed last week, circumcision far predates Judaism. The practice is thought to stretch back about 15,000 years, making it possibly, according to some sources, one of the world's oldest planned surgeries. And unfortunately, it looks like even the YouTube emails notifying me of her comments are disappearing. I think there may have only been a couple of more points to address anyway. I remember she criticized me twice, I think, for using the word amputate when referring to male circumcision. I think I only used it once or maybe twice for kind of comedic effect. I was joking about how some Muslim boys have to recite the Quran sometimes on the same day there to be circumcised, and I joked, okay, you have to recite the entire Quran and we're going to amputate a part of your penis. I thought the word amputate made the joke more effective. But she may have a point. I think traditionally the word amputate refers to a limb or extremity. Um, maybe uh, the foreskin counts as an, as an extremity. I'm not sure. But in fairness, there are anti-circumcision advocates who do use the word amputate or amputation to describe the removal of the foreskin. Actually, in fairness, I'll read some replies I got from someone who's strongly against male circumcision. Okay, his name is Walter Fletcher, and he writes, Galatians chapter 5 verse 2 actually speaks out against circumcision. Biblical circumcision consisted of cutting off only that which hung past the tip of the penis, here we go, getting graphic again, and not the total removal of it. That being said, the Jewish people still had many of the nerves in, and their frenulum, which is more than li likely been removed if circumcision is done to a child today. The frenulum has been compared to the G-spot in way of sensitivity. As for loss of sensitivity, honestly, having it done as an adult, you will have had less time for the sensitivity to have actually deadened the way someone whose foreskin was removed as a child. The wording might be a little weird there, but uh, I think you get the drift. And I don't say that disparagingly. I often <laughs> look back at, in horror at my YouTube comments that I've typed you know, on other people's videos and notice typos and odd grammar mistakes and whatnot. But anyway, uh, he continues, Your sensitivity will take a while to be lost. Three quarters of the world's male population are intact and do not suffer from half the adverse effects the CDC say that we will. In this country, in the countries where FGM is being fought against MGM, uh, and that's the abbreviation for male genital mutilation, is prevalent but ignored. In some rituals, the foreskin is pulled forward while, machete, while a machete is used to cut it off. You can find a video showing this on YouTube by searching mass circumcision. Here in the United States, FGM is illegal by federal law, whereas boys are not given the same protections. Oh yeah, and he had said earlier 
you've shown the cultural bias, the cultural bias, by calling MGM circumcision. Right now in Malawi, the HIV rates have gone up along with the rate of circumcision. America has the highest HIV slash STI rates of any first world country, and we are also the only first world country to to push circumcision. And I think he's making that point because, you know, there's a big push for circumcision in Africa because there's this thought um, that it lowers HIV uh, risks. And of course, there's still a huge AIDS epidemic in Africa. So he's saying that it seems that the situation in Malawi contradicts this thinking and that Malawi, as the circumcision rate goes up, the HIV rates are going up as well instead of falling. And then I replied, hi, Walter, thanks for the thoughtful replies. I replied to a woman, and I'm referring to Seagull B, who criticized me for just the opposite. She thought I was wrong for comparing male circumcision to FGM. I wrote back saying that male circumcision can have serious risks too, but she deleted all her comments. I googled quote-unquote circumcision gone wrong while researching for the show, and the results were horrifying. Ruined penises leading to gender reassignment, infants bleeding to death, etc. I will probably bring those things up in the next episode in which I plan to address her criticisms. And uh, so I guess I did just bring those things up. Yeah, it's even if you're used to, you know, looking at disturbing images, you better have a really strong stomach if you're going to Google circumcision gone wrong. Uh, There's some absolutely horrifying images online of botched circumcisions. And um, yeah, I have heard stories about young boys who had their penises ruined during uh, circumcisions to the point where the doctors thought it best to just do uh, a gender reassignment and, you know, basically take off what's left or whatever. And then very recently, there was a story out of Canada, I think it, I think it was. There was a young couple who had their son circumcised, I think, at a uh, reputable hospital or something, and uh, the, the child ended up bleeding to death. Yeah, and just so I didn't have to do a correction later on, I, I wanted to double-check myself. So, the, so this is the National Post in their health section. Ontario newborn bleeds to death after family doctor persuades parents to get him circumcised. Uh, And that was just back in October, October 25th, 2015. And then, uh, in fairness, this was so long ago, I don't know if it was apocryphal, you know, an urban legend. But I could have sworn as maybe a teenager in my uh, early 20s or something, hearing a story that that angered me or horrified me so much that it stuck with me, something about uh, a doctor who was coked up when he did a circumcision and ended up just butchering, ruining a, uh, a newborn's penis. Um, yeah, there's some really graphic photos of, I think one of the things I almost include this in last week's episode, but I didn't, but one of the devices they use 
to perform circumcisions is called a plasty bell. And I think something can go, there are things that can go wrong when using it. And there's pictures of kids who, instead of just the foreskin being removed, it looks like the majority of the skin ends up missing from the shaft of the penis somehow. Just, I mean, just brutal, nasty stuff. Yeah, but I still consider myself on the fence about the circumcision thing. Obviously, being someone who had one as an adult, uh, I know what things are like on both sides of the fence. I I don't know how common these horror stories with male circumcision are, but I guess if you're a parent and you were going to have your infant son circumcised, that would probably be, you know, something, even if they are rare, that you would want to uh, take into consideration. There's a really uh, kind of infamous or controversial YouTuber, also extremely popular YouTuber, uh, named Onision. And when I was checking out the views on my or comments on my episode, an episode of his on that he had done on circumcision was actually in in the suggested column, the suggested viewing column. And he did his videos are usually really brief. They're like three or four minutes long on average or something. And he did a video stating very strongly that he was against circumcision. And wow, you know, the 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 comment section was kind of like a war zone. Obviously, this is a subject that really polarizes people. Yeah, but so it's funny. Seagull B thought I didn't denounce FGM enough, and Walter Fletcher thought I didn't denounce male circumcision, or MGM as he calls it, enough. Catching flack from both sides, usually the sign of a controversial episode. Finally, and I really regret or lament that I no longer have access to her comments, because I wish in fairness to her that I could read them in verb- Uh, read them verbatim, but she had a list of little criticisms about how I could have made the episode better, what would have made it a more quote-unquote intelligent discussion, how I should have spent more time on modern statistics instead of on the history, and I already spoke about how I love history, that's why I talk about history, and I do regret not getting around to discussing the modern view of FGM in more depth, as I promised I would. Um, but man, that was a long episode, uh, well over an hour after editing. And I was jokingly thinking to myself, all right, Seagull B, I have an extra USB mic if you want to buy it. Uh, actually, if you can afford it, get a traditional mic and a mixing board. And according to my uh, to my friends in the broadcasting industry, it, it makes for better sound. Then buy or download some editing software. Uh, teach yourself how to use it. Um, teach yourself how to get an RSS feed, how to get your podcast on iTunes. Spend about seven hours every week coming up with a topic, researching it, gathering all your thoughts and notes, recording and editing uploading to iTunes and YouTube, and then you can make your own 10-part mini-series on circumcision. Uh, But I'm just venting people. Uh, (laughs) uh, You know, in fairness, criticism is a part of the game, and I actually like that people take the time to reach out and offer their opinions, even if they're not always pleasant. Because, I mean, hey, being exposed to different opinions gets us to think, you know? And... As pleasant as it might be, 
to live in some echo chamber where everyone just echoes your own thoughts, you know, hearing a dissenting voice now and then, um, like I said, you know, it kind of keeps you on edge and keeps you thinking and challenging your own ideas and testing the metal of them, uh, which is a good thing, I think. But anyway, no hard feelings, uh, Seagull. Keep flying free. Um, And you guys know the drill. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes. You can also review the show on iTunes. I think I'm still hanging tough at uh, four and a half out of five stars on iTunes. Also, uh, please check out the YouTube channel. If you're watching the YouTube version, you already are. If you want to help the show out monetarily, you can pledge as little as a dollar a month via Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash doubt, And there's also a PayPal widget on the Podbean page. There's all that famous alliteration. Okay, I guess that does it. Until next week.